The Talking Bull podcast is back. Expect funny moments, plenty of action, and untold stories throughout the years. Brought to you by HP Polling. Hello, and welcome to the Talking Bull podcast brought to you by HP Polly. This is the second edition of the brand new Talking Bull podcast. I'm Nicola Hume. We are here in Milton Keynes at Red Bull HQ. Now, as part of this new style of podcast, we are going all in on the Oracle Red Bull Racing team. So we are chatting to everyone, not just the bosses, not just the drivers, but also the people that build the cars, the people that keep everything moving nice and smoothly on a day-to-day basis. Oh, so you can listen to this podcast in all the usual places, but also, added bonus, you can watch us as well. We are on YouTube on the Oracle Red Bull Racing YouTube channel. If you're there now, and if there's a certain guest that you fancy seeing, then just pop it in the comment section below and let us know. Now, our second guest is pretty legendary. I would say, and is very instrumental in terms of Red Bull's success and Red Bull's speed for the majority of its 18-year history. And his latest design, the RB19, has just been phenomenal and has astounded not only F1 fans, but also experts as well. So ladies and gentlemen, can we have a round of applause for the Chief Technical Officer, Adrian Newey. Thank you for coming. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. Yeah. I feel like this is a really special time to chat to you, actually, because at the start of the season, or even at the end of last season, they were kind of, the pundits were predicting that it was going to be Red Bull dominance this year, and then all of a sudden the RB19 comes along and everyone's blown away by it. Has it kind of even exceeded your own expectations? <sighs> Yes Be honest. No. Yes and you no. don't I have mean, to be humble. The, the, start, <laughs> the start of the season, the first three races, yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, but you have to be absolutely pragmatic and on your toes because we've still got 20 races to go. Others will be pushing hard. Things can change so quickly in Formula One. So we've just got to keep pushing and um, see where we get to at the end of the year. Well, I, see, now I understand this is you. This is you answering as a, as a professional with your Red Bull head on. But as... As the human Adrian deep down inside, is there a part of you that's a little bit smug about how you're feeling right no, now? <laughs> abs- absolutely not. So as soon as you're smug, then you, you, the next moment, you, you know, you've been overtaken. So yeah, you, that's fair enough. You really can't afford to be smug. Kind of um, almost, it's when you're leading and, and expected to be favourite, or you are favourite rather, then it actually brings its own pressures because then you're kind of, you know, if, if, if you have problems, everybody kind of criticizes you if you carry if you're lucky enough to carry on and win then everybody says well we knew that was going to happen so well here's the thing I mean you've it's been a flying start for Red Bull it's been an incredible start but nothing is perfect so have you hit anything along the way so far that you've already kind of gone oh not so sure about that are there is there anything that you've managed to overcome already this season lots yeah I mean it's it's the old um it's the old duck paddling Frantically, and it might look smooth on the top of it. It's not been so smooth. And underneath, you know, we had a, a few reliability concerns coming out of the Bahrain test. So there's always things that are kind of, you're always worrying about things. Reliability, performance as well. Um, Melbourne, we struggled to switch the tyres on, uh, particularly on Friday. Got a little bit more on top of it by qualifying, but certainly wasn't an easy ride. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's been... A, a fascinating start but then when you are looking at 
at the other teams. Do you think there are there are other teams in particular that have been struggling, especially when it came to the regulation changes that came in in 2021? Are there certain teams that you're kind of eyeing up and maybe that you're a bit more wary of as we're, as the season's carrying on, do you think? Well, as, as you say, I mean, in 21 was a huge regulation change, the mm. biggest regulation change since the flat bottom cars of 1983. So from a chassis point of view, as opposed to engine, it was absolutely massive. Um, and this, initially, I must admit, I was a bit depressed by the regulations when I first saw them, but they were then relaxed a bit by as a result of pressure from the teams. And the more we got into them, the more we could see that actually there's more freedom than we thought. And that's, you know, that resulted at the start of last year in a lot of cars looking quite different to each other, which I think is always a good thing, always <laughs> yeah. nice, that viewers can tell the cars not just by the livery, but all by the, also by the shapes. Mm. Um, and in particular, I would say that uh, we took our concept, Ferrari had a, a slightly different but broadly similar concept. Um, Mercedes had a very different concept with a so-called zero side pod. And and that's always a kind of, when you start off on a road in the development of a car, you, you have to make a decision at some point about what route you're going to take. And we obviously chose ours, the others chose theirs. You get then to the first season, the you know, the first races, the season goes on, you develop your your strategy, if you like. Um, Mercedes develop theirs, Ferrari develop theirs. And you're never sure which is going to have the most ultimate potential. The, the, the early starter might not, if you like, have the longest branch or road or whatever adjective you want to use. This is where I, I was wondering if the RB19 has surpassed your own expectations, because you created that blueprint for the RB18 and then subsequent RB19. So at the time that you were creating the RB18, did you have a, a vision of, oh, this is what it's going to be like by 2023? You have a vision of what you're trying to come up with, which is led by wind tunnel, CFD, mechanical design considerations, trying to get the, the package to work as a whole, vehicle dynamics, obviously. So you, you you try to blend all those three disciplines together mm. to produce what you hope will be the, the fastest package. Um, once you're on that route, then you have to, unless if, unless it's obviously got inherent problems, you tend to keep going. Um, and so far, the, the basic concept seems to have been decent. And so what RB19, this year's car, compared to last year's, really is a detailed evolution. We critiqued to the things we weren't happy with. The car was... Still slightly overweight. There are a few handling things that we weren't quite happy with. The usual kind of aerodynamic development, minor regulation changes, the floor edge height. So all those things you kind of throw into the mix. And and so as you can see, the this year's car is clearly a, a, a strong family resemblance to last year's, but improved in many detailed ways. So if you've compared it to last year's, how would you compare it to a car that Seb Vettel was driving, like the RB7, for example, how could you compare the two of those? They're, inevitably, they're very different, I think. If you go back through the years, because I'm kind of old enough to have been in, in this for a very <laughs> long time now, and in the kind of um, in the through the 80s, then teams were 50 to maybe 150 people, um, much smaller. But the big change really has been the computer age that go back to the 80s, there was no computing power to speak of. Um, so the cars were, were 
the cars were drawn on a drawing board and the understanding was what you could try to glean, particularly on the aerodynamic side from kind of observing the flow of wall tufts and flovers and that sort of stuff and then trying to use your mouse to, to understand what was going on with the flow physics. Now, with CFD coming on kind of in the mid-90s, then then we now have a huge understanding of what the flow physics and the flow fields are. Everything's, we can go into much more detail, which even if we'd had 800 people in, in the 80s, we wouldn't have known what to do with them, to be perfectly honest. Um, it's, with the computer age has been the huge change for Formula One mm. that we can now go into much, with all the simulation programs that we have, vehicle dynamics, aerodynamics, mechanical design, the CAD packages and so forth. We can really go into a lot of detail. Um, uh, and that really has been the, the kind of game changer for the development of the cars. When I first stepped here at Milton Keynes at MK7, I was blown away by the vastness of the place. It's like, mm. a, if for those that don't get to see it, with their own eyes. It's like a university campus is probably the best way to describe it. Yes. And it is getting bigger. Yeah. So what's life like for you here in Milton Keynes? I think it's, um, my dad was a vet and I remember asking him because he was sort of veterinary practice until he retired at around 65. So from when he graduated and started practice in, I'm guessing kind of 1940 or something mm. through to when he retired, then obviously there's a huge change in medicine. And I remember asking him when I was, I don't know, a teenager, how do you keep up with the yeah. change in technology? Yeah. And he said, well, when you're in it day by day, you don't really notice, you just adapt and change. And and it's only when you look back that you realise how much it has changed. And I think for us and for me personally, it's exactly the same. Um, you kind of naturally through almost osmosis, you absorb and try to learn and use new technologies. So when it comes to your team on like a, a day-to-day basis, what, what's it like here at, at MK7 for them? Uh, well, hopefully they enjoy it. I mean, that's, that's the most important <laughs> well, it's good thing. catering. We found that out so yes, far. It's very good, nice. Good, good. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we try to look after staff. We, we try to run a very flat structure. So like any organisation, you have to have a, an organogram, a sort of pyramid of, of, of layers, if you like. Mm. But certainly within the engineering department, try to encourage a very flat structure where... We're quite careful with the seating plans to make sure that people who need to communicate with each other are sitting as close as possible. Try to minimise the number of meetings. The meeting culture is, can just be such a big time-wasting culture. Uh, equally, try to encourage people to talk, not just to email each other. So try the coffee shop's another way of doing that. Um, just try to make sure that everybody talks to each other, keeps each other informed as much as possible. And a lot of the ideas, because really the engineering in terms of the progress of the cars is is ideas generated. Mm. So it's about trying to have a culture that where people feel comfortable coming up with ideas and, and, and everybody embracing them, having a look at them, chasing them through. And if they, if at some point it's obvious that they're not going to bear fruit, make the car quicker, then you have to drop them. If if they are, then fantastic, and you keep developing. And that's really right, the way we try to operate. Well, that's what I, I really want to chat to you about, the progress of the cars, because, I mean, we are in the RB19 era, so how far ahead 
are you designing right now? So there's big changes coming in 2026 when everything's changing over to Ford. So are you already planning ahead for that? Are you already designing that? Are you already pen to paper? Are you already on the go for that? On the chassis side, not so much. On the engine side, yes, mm. absolutely. So Ben Hodgkinson and the and the RB Powertrains team, that's their sole focus is the 26 engine. Um, on the chassis side for the 26 engine, we're looking at how that packages. Um, so Rob Marshall um, is, is kind of the guy that's really looking after that, and he's doing a great job at looking forward at how we integrate all that. Um, but other than that, we don't have a proper set of aerodynamic regulations or anything else yet to go on. So there's no point in us spending too much time on that until we have a, a much more defined set of regulations. Well, I guess everything does then have to work around the engine, doesn't it? Because, I mean, over the years, you've designed cars that have worked around Renault, Mercedes, Honda, et cetera. And now you're going to be working with Ford. So does that completely change how you would then design the chassis around it? Does, is it all dependent on the engine? It is and it isn't. So, I mean, the, the, the 26, well, to answer your question, yes, absolutely. When you're designing the chassis, <laughs> you have to, the, the, the basic architecture of the car, the engine's a key part. Because any Formula One car for many years now, you, you've got the, the basic structure of driver, fuel tank, battery nowadays, of course, underneath the, the fuel tank, engine gearbox with the turbo and everything, and then the radiators on the side. So that basic structure kind of, sorts out your your underlying architecture if you like mm. which is why the wheelbases are now so long because by the time you package that lot got the weight distribution you want you end up with these gigantic cars and they are huge they are yeah. they are long um so the engine yes of course it's key the detail of the integration is is kind of then the the real trick now because by regulation they're all v 90 degree v6 1.6 liters that's turbocharged with a hybrid system. So that's all kind of in there and baked in. It's not like the old days where it's a, well, somebody might have a V8, somebody have a V10, the other, another person have a V12. That's that's long gone. But within that kind of V6 thing, there's still a, a lot of detail of how to integrate the engine. Talking Ball is brought to you by HP Poly. Poly provide best-in-class communications hardware solutions for the Oracle Red Bull Racing team, both at the track and back at the factory. Their premium audio and video products allow the team to focus on what they do best, winning world championships. To find out more about what Polly can offer your business, visit their website at polly.com. Ensure you have your best meeting anywhere, anytime, every time. Now, back to the podcast. So we've got a a new game now with our new Talking Ball podcast, and it is the Oracle Rebel Racing 100 Objects. So... How this is going to work is we're going to create a Red Bull Formula One Hall of Fame, if you will. So every guest that's going to come on this show will bring in an object that means something to them, something that's been instrumental to their experience within Red Bull. I mean, it could be anything from a pen to a a part of the engine, whichever you choose, it's totally up to you. So what would you like to place in our 100 objects? I know we're thinking big going yeah. 100. This is literally object Absolutely. object number two, but <laughs> okay. we'll see how well, we, we get go. on. So, uh, <laughs> so you obviously warned me about this, Nicola. Thank you. So, um, <laughs> Welcome. I've chosen my faithful old sketch pad stroke notebook and my pencil. Oh, fabulous. Just there, yeah. Thank you. As you can see, it's... Um, it's been through the years. I yes. think I've had this for more than 10 years now. I'll be honest, most of it, uh, well, that was actually 
So he's just, that's, that's not the handwritten. Australian notes. There we go. That's, that's not handwritten. <laughs> but you go a bit further in and you'll have all the junk. Um, and Because you're, you're quite old school, aren't well, you? I am. In a good way. There's no complaints there. But you're, no. quite, you're old school, give me a pen and paper, let me doodle it. You know, that guy. I, I am. I, I, pen and paper is my kind of default, if you like. Yeah. So I scribble a lot. I still work on a drawing board. And that, for me, as opposed to a CAD system, Mm. And that for me is kind of first language. Yeah. So I graduated in 1980. As mentioned earlier, CAD systems didn't really kind of come to maturity until mid to late, mid 90s, let's say. Um, so I was been 15 years on the board by then. And I kind of looked at other guys and they seemed to, certainly the early CAD systems, it's changed over the last few years, but um, they spend a lot of time and a lot of energy getting the lines onto the onto the CAD. And once they'd done that, because they'd used so much energy doing that, they seem to be reluctant to use the electronic rubber. Yeah. Um, so I, I think certainly I can, for general layouts and concepts, I can work quite quickly with a, a pencil and rubber. Yeah. Um, I think through training effectively, from a very young age, then I seem to be reasonably good at mentally vis visualizing things. So the fact I can't draw in 3D doesn't bother me because I can easily break 3D into 2D. Yeah. Um, and that's, and as I say, I, I think more than anything, it's my first language. If I tried to now convert to a CAD system, then it would be like talking foreign language. I'd never be as natural. So that's kind of part of my job is then drawing on the drawing board. Um, then have a, a team of two or three people who take my drawings, scan them, because now everything has to be in, into digital form at some yeah. point. And then they turn those into 3D drawings and so forth. But before you get to the drawing board, you've got to have the ideas in the mm -hmm. first place. And that's where the sketch pad I mean, I said, I, said, I said to the team when we knew that we were going to come up with the 100 objects, I, I remember saying to the team, I was like, I'm going to be disappointed if it's not a paper and pen that you bring in. <laughs> I just had a feeling that that's exactly yeah. what it was going yeah. to be. So I'm so pleased. Object number two, going into our Hall of Fame, is your notebook and pen. Fantastic. Thank you. I need to dig into your, your history at Red Bull. So you joined in 2006, where at the time Red Bull were babies you know, taking baby steps within yeah. Formula One. At the time, you were at McLaren, a very established team, a very historic team. You were, I mean, you could say you were at the at the top of your game and then you kind of left McLaren yeah. to join Red Bull, who were just this brand new to How on earth did that happen? Uh, felt I needed a new challenge is, oh, okay. is, 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 the, is, the, is the very short answer. <laughs> I was wondering answer. if it was money. It might be. No, I mean, the very, the very short answer is felt I needed a new challenge. And it's also a little bit of unfinished business because when I first got into Formula One, it was the tiny team called Layton House. Um, we were literally 50 people. Um, but we had some decent results in, in 1988 and 90. We had a dry year in 89. Um, and the team was, I think, had lots of promise. Basically, the, the owner got thrown in prison, which is never a good move. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the team fell apart. <laughs> so I then moved to Williams and on to McLaren, as you, as you mentioned. And so mo moving to Williams and McLaren, um, lucky enough to win races and championships with them, but they had won races and championships long before I joined. I think 
my contribution when I joined was to bring hopefully some design ideas and talent. Um, but the infrastructure was all there. Yeah. So the idea to then be involved in a team more or less from the start was quite appealing. Yeah. And um, when Christian made a habit of kind of always be walking the other way down the down the paddock when I was walking in in the morning or whatever. And he knew what he hi. was doing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, just, I think he was <laughs> Bit of casual to... eye contact. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and David Coulthard, who was with with me um, at Williams and then McLaren, had obviously then moved to Red Bull. And he is, so I asked him about Red Bull and he said, look, they're, great. they're a great bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to look, do a bit of looking and it certainly looked like, Dietrich Mateschitz and everything that was going on in Austria looked stable because, frankly, my concern was entrepreneur owners. Having worked for Leighton House entrepreneur owner, who obviously... (laughs) Yeah, that wasn't the best start for you. That wasn't the best start. And (laughs) entrepreneur owners, typically in Formula 1, haven't had a great lease of life. They've they've come in usually with a big bang, lots of noise, quite often then either lost interest or run out of money. Um, So the important thing for me was what was Red Bull's kind of, were they going to be one of those fizz bang and disappear or were they in for the long haul? And and certainly everything I could see, then Red Bull was a proper growing company. Dietrich was clearly passionate about it. Um, The opportunity then to, as I say, work with this brand new startup team who... In fairness, through 2005, we're a bit the joke of the pit lane. Um, they're known as the party team, there's the Red Bulletin, nobody, the big energy station, nobody took it seriously. Um, but, you know, with, underneath there was clearly a, a desire to get on and, and do something and, yeah. and so took a risk. So I don't know if you know this, but when you Google your name, the first option that comes up is, <laughs> why is Adrian Newey so good? So can you answer that question? <laughs> I haven't Googled my name. Why are you so good? <laughs> and I can't answer that question either, no. Um, I suppose maybe in part because I don't think I am that good. <laughs> so, okay, that's fair yeah. enough. I mean, because yeah. there's, there's the famous quote from Christian Horner himself, who is clearly a, a, a big, big fan of yours. And he said that you are the only bloke that can see air. So can you either confirm or deny if this is true or not? I certainly... Well, can you see no, air? No, Do you I look at a cow that, and think I, of the aerodynamics yeah. on it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody did actually do that the other day, didn't they, CFD decal? But um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think through... Hey, when I was... My dad was a vet, as I mentioned earlier, um, but he was also a huge car enthusiast. So he had a success in... Mini Cooper S's and then Lotus Alans. The Lotus Alans came as kits that you then finished off to, I think it was a way of avoiding car tax. So certainly the second Alan, I was able to help him put that together. Um, he had a little workshop in the in the garden with basic metal working equipment and so forth. So I used to make scale models. And then after, by the time I was about 10 or 11, I was bored of making other people's models. So I cannibalized those, started sketching my own designs and, and then making them by folding up bits of aluminium, making bits of fiberglass and so forth. Mm. Now, of course, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, but I think what it did do is is help to develop my kind of ability to look at something, visualise it, try to understand it, 
So I didn't know what I was trying to understand, but I was trying to understand it. Yeah. Uh, and there's that old thousand hour rule thing that if you, to be expert at something, you need to do a thousand hours. And the younger you do those thousand hours, the better. And, and completely unwittingly, I was doing that. And I think that that has helped me certainly in my career. Plus, in truth, a single mindedness to want to be a design engineer in, in motor racing. That's from the age of 10 or 11, that's what I wanted to do and been lucky enough to end up doing it. And it, well, that's what I mean. Yeah. But was there a backup plan for you if that didn't work out? Become <laughs> a vet, really. maybe? Follow your dad's footsteps? N- well, funny, so my career's advice at O-levels, what's now called GCSEs, yeah. um, was that I should do art, history and English because I was actually better at the arts than I was at the sciences. Okay. Um, but that came to an abrupt end anyway because I got chucked out at school at 16. So nice. I then went to <laughs> the local technical college and studied, um, did a thing called an old national diploma in technology. And, and that was kind of perfect because it, get, it gave a, a broad set of skills and was enough to get me into uni. Studied aeronautical engineering at uni, not out of in, any interest in aircraft, but because I figured that racing cars are closer to aircraft than the other kind of technology yeah and um yeah then was there no was there a backup plan not really when i it came to the university milk round and trying to get a job then i just wrote around to all the teams i could find addresses for most of course didn't apply um finally oh, or if they did reply they gave the catch 22 answer of any take people's experience yeah that's always the way yeah, yeah. so but anyway finally harvey postlethwaite um who was working at a little team fitipaldi rang me up and said could I come for an interview? Uh, I had my motorbike at the time, which was, um, unfortunately, my grandmother passed when I was 19, left me a bit of will money, which I very responsibly used to buy a Ducati. <laughs> so I, I um, much to my parents' disgust, I rode up to, from Southampton to Reading, where Fittipaldi was, sat in the porter cabin with my leathers on, and uh, Harvey came out and said, oh, what motorbike have you got? Ducati 900 SS. He had the Moto Guzzi Le Mans, which in the 70s, they were the, the two kind of big Italian rivals. Can I have a go on a Ducati? So off he went, came back with a big Cheshire Cat grin on his face and said, when can you start? So that's well, my, so you didn't even have an interview? That's my one and only interview in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Easiest yeah. interview ever. Yeah. Thank yeah. you to your grandma. Yes, that, that's actually my, gra- yeah, my grandmother. So we have been... Um, We've been getting uh, everyone to get in touch to kind of send in their questions because we've got lots and lots of questions from lots of people from around the world that want to ask you things. So these are from Oracle Red Bull Racing fans from around the world. So we're going to start with Anna from the Czech Republic who says, what part of the car is the most fun for you to design or tweak? I think the thing I enjoy most is actually um, laying out the car particularly if it's a new set of regulations like we had last year, then kind of sitting back, trying to understand the regulations, what's going to be involved, what route do we take, and then trying to come up with an architecture, as you mentioned earlier, the kind of where you put the major masses, what you're trying to achieve aerodynamically, vehicle dynamics, um, what that then drives in terms of suspension layout. So for instance, with this car, we went, pull rod front, which seemed to be appropriate to the layout of the car and the aerodynamics and push rod rear, um, pull rod being when the, the, the suspension arms like that and push rod being like that. Push rod rear, again, seemed to suit the aerodynamics of the car. Um, 
So it's those sorts of things that I really enjoy. Then once you then go into the details, I've kind of, I'm a bit of a, well, I'm a complete maverick in the organisation at that point because I tend to go around and see which bit I think or feel could possibly be improved from a, a different pair of eyes over and above what the guys are working on mm. day in, day out. And I think that's where occasionally I can contribute because I float around a bit, then I I can sometimes hopefully bring in ideas from a slightly different angle compared to if you're doing that job, um, as I say, kind of not day in, day out, but for a significant amount of your time. You do seem like the the kind of guy that would, maybe you would sit in your office for like half an hour, you'd do a little thing to yourself and then you'd just end up all over the place and just kind of checking on everyone and making sure everything is going on. Have I got you down to a T? Can be like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, actually I must admit, I'm afraid I'm totally unprepared for this interview. I, I know you did give a question sheet, which I'm afraid I didn't read before. No, that's because, fine. Um, it's lovely. Of, I feel like we're having a nice little casual well, chat. This something is nice. came up last, yesterday evening, so um, a, a problem we've or area of the car where we feel we could do better, um, and so we started talking about it last night. The usual thing overnight, kind of flipping. Not the best night's sleep, but you start Trippy thinking dreams. about it. Yeah. Um, all this morning, then, then kind of been sketching it, and then we've got some meeting about it. Um, in about half an hour's time. Oh, okay. So no stress. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah. Let's get through these questions then. Right. Yeah. This one is from um, Agalos, who is in Canada, who says, you've had an incredible career across a range of series and have had incredible success with Red Bull. Is there anything specific that you want to achieve before you retire? Or have you achieved everything that you've wanted and you just want to continue until you stop enjoying your work? I think it, in truth, it's the latter. Um, I mean, I, as I mentioned earlier, my ambition was always to work in motor racing. Um, achieved that. And every day, I know it sounds a bit corny, but every day since then has been a bonus. I remember, Be corny. Love a bit of corny. Well, I remember getting to the end of my first month at Fittipaldi's um, and getting my first salary paycheck. And I genuinely felt I didn't have any idea what I was doing. Well, I don't think I did have any idea what I was doing. I was, I was employed as junior aerodynamicist, which turned out to be senior aerodynamicist as well. I was the one and only aerodynamicist in the team, which is unbelievable oh, by today's no standards. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've got no idea what they're doing and they've been stupid enough to pay me as well. And it's, and it's kind of, I think, I suppose I, I always try to be self-critical. Well, I am self-critical. I don't need to try to be. And I think that's probably a useful thing to be. Um, it's a bit like you were asking earlier about the performance of the car. I think we all see the faults, not the good sides yeah. in a way. And that's how you, I think you have to be. Um, but yes, I mean, I've been lucky enough to now have worked with great people in terms of my fellow engineers here at Red Bull and at previous teams, Christian, the drivers, um, some great drivers over the years. So, you know, it's, it's, been a, it's been a, it's cost been the odd day where I was, oh God, what, whatever. But overall, I've had a, had a wonderful time. And in terms of, okay, now I'm 64, so when, when do I stop? That's, that's the interesting one. And when I was kind of in my 40s, I always thought, right, 
60, 60, 60, I think 60 will be enough and that's it. I'll, I'll be out of here and I'll be lying on the beach. But then I'd, I now know myself well enough to know that I get quite bored. Yeah, you'll lying be doodling. On a beach. You'll be doing aerodynamics yeah. of the waves <laughs> while you're on the beach. <laughs> exactly. But I think maybe at some point, probably to just pull back from Formula One and get involved in other things. I enjoyed doing the Valkyrie project, the, yeah. uh, what became the Valkyrie, the Aston Martin. And we're now working on RB17 as a sort of uh, weekend project, like, well, a bit more than weekend project. but I was going to say, it's quite a big weekend <laughs> yeah, project. Exactly. It's a long weekend project. Yeah. So <laughs> I do involve being another thing, involved in other things as well now. So this question is from Oliver from Norway. He says, uh, what is the most common engineering degree in Red Bull Racing? Ooh, I would hazard a guess it has to be aeronautical engineering. Um, aeronautical engineering, everybody thinks of as them making you an aerodynamicist. And of course, to a large extent, that is true. I would imagine that all our aerodynamics department have, have aer just about all of them will have aeronautical engineering degrees. But it also teaches you about structures, control theories, so on and so forth. Um, so I think if the question is also, if, if, if the question is from a, a lad who's looking at what to do for university. Seems like it, yeah. Then I would suggest aeronautical engineering at one of the better universities if you can manage it, it's fantastic. Um, but it also depends what your interest is. If, if for instance, it's simulation, vehicle dynamics, you might be better off with a maths degree. So it, it really depends on the interest. And finally, this is from Noel in the Netherlands, who says, do you think F1 cars will get much faster in the future? Because they're already pretty blooming fast. I might yeah. have changed the bloom. I, I am the bloom. <laughs> you, you, you've enhanced the question. I did a little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, it's all controlled by regulations. So if if we didn't have regulations, Formula One cars would be ridiculously rocket fast. Ships. Yeah, they would be <laughs> rocket ships. Um, at which point safety would, of course, be the, the big, big problem. And and tyre failures, because I think then the limitation, if we were just allowed to develop as much downforce as we could, the tyre manufacturers have it hard enough as it is without it. You know, they just wouldn't, wouldn't be able to take the loads. So it is possible, for instance, that this current generation of Formula 1 cars will be the fastest for some time because the 2026 rules, as proposed at the moment, the cars will be quite a lot slower. Ah, interesting. Right, okay. Uh, right, so we're on to our final game. It's the uh, it's the HP Poly game. So we are sponsored by HP Poly. If you want right. to pop on your headset, that'd be great. Right, yeah. so... Here is how you go. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. Let's take them off for a second. For a yeah. Right. So this is how you earn your points, right? We're yeah. going to play you three clips. Now, all I need you to do is tell me which car you are hearing. And then you'll okay. get a point for each one that you get oh, right. So let's like pop on your headset. We'll go for car number one. Go for it. Uh, it's clearly either a V8 or a V10 from the normally aspirated era. Um, I would guess that that's a V8, not a V10. It's not easy to tell them apart sometimes. Mm. So I would say that's 
It's an engine type, or you actually want me to I'm, guess I'm the after, actual I'm after car. The, car? the car and the year. The car and the oh, yeah. Goodness sake. <laughs> Just to make it a little bit a little tough. Bit to be harder. fair, on Christian's episode, that he had it really tough. So okay. we're trying to make it level. All oh, right, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to therefore, I mean, most recent it can be is 213. Um, Richard says cars. I don't want to rush you, but we've got two more clips. Two th- let's go for 213. <laughs> let's go for 213. Oh, yeah, you're going for two. Oh, okay, you are, you are wrong, I'm afraid. Oh, it is the RB7 from 2011. Are you ready for number two? Go on then. Come on then, put your headset on. Okay, clip number two. These are hard, aren't they? Yeah, well, you know. There's, there's a big prize if there's no prize. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> get a lifetime supply of oxygen, why not? <laughs> It'll be Johnson Wheatley or something. Get all, all these. Right, so it's, it's clearly a semi-automatic gearbox. Clearly. But, yeah, as in very quick gear changes. Yeah. Um, still sounds... Would you think a similar era? <sighs> It's a bit of a funny sound because it, it doesn't sound quite like the V8s, but equally it doesn't really sound like the V6s. But so it's definitely not a V8, one. so I think it has to be a V6. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say an RB18. Oh, it's the RB12 from 2016. Ugh. Okay, last one, last one, last one. <laughs> I was right on this the is V6. Number three. So far, yeah. you're doing terribly. <laughs> <laughs> last one, clip number three. <clears throat> Oh, you don't look confident. No, I'm not. That sounds like a very early V6. So I'd oh, you're say going early. Interesting. Early V6 turbo. So I'd say, I'll say the 2014 car. Now oh, I'm wondering if um, you might want to go a bit newer than that. Mm, <laughs> <laughs> so don't tell me that was RV18. <laughs> that was the RV18. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> well, I can tell. Adrian, you, you scored zero out of three. Thank you. Well done. Well done. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for. I want to say a massive thank you for, thank you. for joining. It's been lovely to chat to you. It's been really great. Hopefully we can catch up again. Yeah, and at don't some put point me on soon. the game show again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to make it even more difficult next time. Yeah. Well, in that case, I'll be homework. minus five. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much, Nicola. But thank join you. us next time on Talking Ball. <laughs>